This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 282. And the quote of the day is from Edward Norton, who said, the more you do your homework, the more you're free to be intuitive, but you've got to put in the work. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. Hey, what's going on? It's Nick Ruffini from Drummer's Resource. You're listening to the podcast. Hope you're doing well. This is session 282, and I got my man Taku Hirano here. And Taku is one of the greatest percussionists in the world. He's played with everyone from Fleetwood Mac to Whitney Houston, Bette Midler, Stevie Nicks. He played on the Cirque du Soleil, Michael Jackson, Immortal World Tour. The guy has done it all. He serves up a ton of information about how he's how he got a lot of these gigs, the networking behind it all, and really the relationship building that he put in to build this career that he has. So we're going to get into it in one second. First, I want to let you know that every Friday I send out an email, a That's a Wrap email that is all about what was released that week. But on Mondays, I'm going to start sending out another email about what's to come for the week, but also some links that I'm checking out, some things that, that I'm listening to, uh, you know, new music, turn you on to that and and all of that fun stuff. So if you're already on the mailing list, cool, you'll get those emails. If you're not, you can just go to drummersresource.com and sign up for the email list and you'll get that. I don't send a ton of emails. I send one every Friday and then I'll start sending one on Monday as well. So if you want to do that again, just head over to the website, drummersresource.com and uh, let's get into it with the one and only Taku Hirano. Taku, how are you, my man? Thanks for doing this. I'm great. I'm great. It's great to meet you, Nick. Glad to be here. Likewise. So you're right now. You you'd mentioned you're just finishing up um, some rehearsals for the at the Apollo, right? Yep. Showtime at the Apollo. It is um, going to be basically a reboot show from the the classic Showtime at the Apollo. It's going to be hosted by Steve Harvey, and uh, it's going to air on Fox uh, as a weekly show um, in prime time starting next year. So we uh, just had a couple weeks of rehearsals and mm-hmm. we ended up um recording the first set of probably like eight shows and i think we go back in the fall and record another 10 10 shows tape you know tape them with contestants and nice what's it just packs. a week it's yeah. a weekly show yeah i believe it's a weekly show that starts up next year awesome and i know that through our conversation where we were talking about brian dunn was is brian playing on the show as well yes brian is in the house band okay um yep he actually had to leave back out on tour with Hall & Oates on one of our last days of taping. So we had another uh, drummer come in. So I think the way they're going to edit you know, the shows, they may be kind of like, um, so th- there will be a second drummer playing on with uh, some jacks and, and whatnot. Okay. This young uh, guy named Mike Moore, who's a fantastic drummer. He's based in LA. He's originally from Baltimore. Oh, uh, okay. Um, I, yep. So. Awesome. Awesome. I'm excited yeah. to see that, man. I, re- I remember watching that show as a kid and like they come out and rub the wood and, and go and then they get, you know, the, the, the guy comes along with a hook and pulls them off the stage. Exactly. It's, it's still the same. It's really it. fun. I yep. love it. So wasn't that show originally, cause it's not the original, original Apollo theater. Apollo theater moved, I think. Right. You know, I, I'm not sure. I, I thought I, it, I, mean, I could be wrong too. Been around for a long time. So I, 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 as far as I've known that it's been there. It's so. that one. Yeah, man. There's a lot of history there. I, I was talking to Jim Payne about the guys who would come through Apollo and he would go see him. Like, he was like, oh, I saw James Brown there and I saw Otis Redding there and I saw, and like before they were, you know, these huge superstars. It's amazing how much history is there. Oh, definitely. Even like you said, the piece of wood that it's called the tree of hope. It's the, it's the stump from the tree that used to be on 125th street and all the performers rub it before they go on. For right. Good luck. And the people who've rubbed that, to perform it's been like jackson five ella fitzgerald you know i mean yeah. it's like everybody a who's who before they became famous has has gone on that stage and laid hands on that uh, tree of hope it's it's quite amazing you know the amount of history yep can you feel that history in the theater when you're when you're there you can you can just because you know it's an old theater and you see the photos you see photos of everyone from a young tito puente to a young you know Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. I mean, mm-hmm. just the amount of history in there. And so you see all these historic photos and, you know, it is kind of like there's a, there's a sense of reverence. You walk in, you're like, wow, this is, this is where all that stuff happened. All that so, stuff happened. Yeah. Yeah. 
Is there is there a sense of of uh, I mean, is it intimidating by any means? I don't find it intimidating. No, no, more inspiring. No, yeah, yeah, for sure. So, if you if you look at your resume, put, put you know talking about being intimidated versus being inspired, and and looking at the people who you've played with, I mean, everybody from Fleetwood Mac and Whitney Houston, Bette Midler, Lionel Richie, you know, John Mayer. Uh, there you you have. It's not like you're playing with these B and C list uh, artists. So I can see how things like that wouldn't intimidate you. But I want to rewind a little bit and talk about how all of this got started. How did you How did you start this career? How Where did it start for you? And how did you get this interest in playing percussion? Uh, I first started playing percussion. Uh, kind of what I consider a typical way: school band, school orchestra. Started in fifth grade. Um. I grew up in Fresno, California. Not a whole lot going on in Fresno, but there's a lot of arts, music and musical theater and all that kind of stuff going on. So mm -hmm. uh, the music programs were fantastic there. And so I started off at age nine in the fifth grade, you know, playing classical percussion um, in the school band. My first instrument was marimba, went to timpani and concert snare and auxiliary percussion as well as drum set. Uh, that was all by the time I turned 10 years old. I started playing in the you know, city county honor bands and all state bands and whatnot all the way through. Um, as far as, and I kept up my, my classical studies. Um, my family moved overseas to Hong Kong. I went to Hong Kong International School. My dad had a business transfer. And I uh, ended up studying with the principal timpanist of the Hong Kong Philharmonic. And so we really got serious about training me for Juilliard. So I really got into mallets and timpani. At the same time, I was playing, you know, high school coffee houses on drum set and whatnot. Um, moved back to California for the last two years of high school. My my parent, uh, my father got transferred back. So then I went to a school of the arts back in Fresno, and they had a really strong um, program for jazz. And uh, they actually had a salsa band. They had a Latin jazz combo as well as like a Latin jazz big band. Um, and so I ended up then at, in eleventh grade learning how to play Brazilian and Afro-Cuban percussion for the first time. Mm. Bongos, congas, timbales, pandero, cuica, playing, you know, like escola de samba, like samba school type of percussion ensemble music. And I got really into it. Um, the great thing about living in Hong Kong was my school was so far ahead of American public school that by the time I moved back to to Fresno for 11th grade, I was pretty much done with all my academic credits in order to graduate. So, oh, really? So by my senior year, you know, like I had like all music classes. Right. Uh, so I was, you know, I did jazz band, jazz combo, uh, the Latin jazz band, studio recording, orchestra. And then I think I had to take like a history class. That was my day for my entire last year of high school. Wow. And, and then after school, I would go play in the city county on orchestra, you know. Nice. So you're doing a lot of playing at a young age. A lot of playing. And then and I got accepted to Berkeley College of Music. I went to their uh, kind of summer five-week program to check it out the uh, summer before my senior year. I dug it, and I applied. That's the only place I applied to, and I got accepted. And so once I finished high school, uh, I moved to Boston. I went to Berkeley College of Music. And hmm. I went there. Berkeley didn't have a hand percussion um principal instrument so it was either like you either play jazz vibes classical percussion or drum set i had no interest in playing classical percussion after two years of getting to play like latin jazz and salsa music and sure. jazz so i was like okay i'm gonna audition on drum sales I, I was an okay drummer mm -hmm. um and i got in you know and um i started out as a jazz drummer there um and then about halfway through college they actually uh, introduced hand percussion as a principal instrument. So I switched over and basically had to divert like lots of my time to trying to finish the credits in order to graduate on time. So I ended up being actually the first hand percussion principal graduate at Berkeley College of Music because I did the program in two years. I did it from, you know, in my last two years of college, I did a four-year wow. program. Wow. Yeah. So were you just always drawn to hand percussion versus drum set or was it just... I think so. Yeah, I, I always was. Even living in Hong Kong and studying uh, classical percussion uh, intensely, I always I always wanted to learn how to play congas or bongos or you know something like that. And I just I was always wondering, you know. But there's, it could be just the way I am. I'm like I'm not gonna just randomly go hit on a drum until I know how to do it right or have mm -hmm. some kind of instruction. That's just kind of the way I am. So. I wasn't one of those guys that was always hitting on pots and pans when I was a little kid. I was, I wanted to, you know, I, 
I think it's just a, a, a it's a thirst for knowledge and it's also a fear of being embarrassed <laughs> yeah. that I, I want to be like good at something uh, and I need instruction. So it wasn't really, it wasn't until I actually had a situation where I could learn percussion instruments, uh, hand percussion instruments that I, that I got into it. But once I had that opportunity, I just grabbed it and went. Same thing with my first year at Berkeley. Um, it turned out my freshman year at Berkeley, second semester, Giovanni Hidalgo started teaching at Berkeley. So oh, nice. Giovanni was at Berkeley for four years, and it was the four years that I happened to be at Berkeley. And so I basically diverted all of my time for elective you know, credits and whatnot to take every possible class, ensemble, private lesson with him. And then, you know, halfway through college again, I ended up becoming a hand percussion principal. And then so all that went towards my, my major. Um, so I studied intensively with, with Giovanni uh, in group settings as well as privately. And then um, I also studied with Jamie Haddad mm-hmm. uh, as far as all the South Indian and Middle Eastern percussion, uh, frame drumming and all that kind of stuff. So It's amazing to me that that they didn't have a hand percussion principal, principal major at the time. What, yeah. Like, what year are we talking? 91. Yeah, it's not, if you were like, oh, it was 1965, you yeah. know, I would I would think, oh, okay, well, I can see why they win. But I, luckily, you got in there at, at the right time and, and were able to finish it in two years. Yes. What's, I mean, what's it like studying with somebody like Giovanni? Uh, that is intimidating because, um, I mean, he's a warm, friendly, lovable guy, but it's like, you know, you want to do your best. And guys that play on that level, you're when you walk in, you're not sure – you know, like not every Burnin player is a great teacher, mm-hmm. and uh, he is. He's a good teacher, um, but you have to be able to pick up stuff really quickly. You know, because um, he's used to being around top level musicians. So mm-hmm. if he shows you something, you know, you have to pick it up and be able to play it back to him, or you know, or whatnot. So I got really fast at sight transcribing, and then just kind of figuring out the motor skills of what he just played and play it back to him. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of a boot camp. Um, but it, it was, it was, you know, it was fantastic. He's a left-handed player. I'm a right-handed player. So some of my favorite memories were of us facing each other with a set of like three or four congas and playing mm-hmm. the same, you know, where we would be mirroring each other yeah, you know, yeah. face to face. Yeah. So it was like, it was quite, it was quite an amazing experience for sure. I, I can only imagine Yeah, thinking about as a, as a drummer, learning you know as a as a drum set player i should say uh-huh. starting to learn percussion even in college when i when i was a per- performance major i was playing kit and making the transition to hand percussion it's a difficult transition it's sure it's the same but it's not if you know if that makes any sense um yep. so for drummers who are out there who are listening what do you think is the is an, an a good progression if they want to start getting into hand percussion because i think and correct me if i'm wrong but i think if you're a drummer but you can also play hand percussion and do it really well it opens up a lot more opportunities for you as a career right oh definitely even just from a, uh, if you stand back in uh, one step and just even from a musical aspect I've been on gigs as a percussionist where I play alongside a drummer and the drummer has some knowledge of percussion or hand percussion or Afro-Cuban rhythms or Brazilian rhythms. It makes my job so much easier because we're not stepping on each other's feet. Conversely, like if I'm working with a drummer and they have absolutely no concept, sometimes they're even playing like Latin percussion parts on the toms (laughs) that are (laughs) actually that are actually like parts that were taken from a conga pattern. I'm kind of like, no, 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 I got, I, I got this, but they don't, they don't realize it. Like, no, you're playing actually like a conga part. That's why, you know, like the, <laughs> that's what I'm here for. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, you, you've heard like kind of a, the typical tomb bow pattern and you've heard jazz drummers, uh, play where it's like, they do a side stick on beat two and they'll do four and on a tom to go, go. Mm-hmm. That's a conga. That's like the most basic, afro-cuban conga tumbao pattern but like i've been on gigs where like the drummer will start playing that i'm like you're playing my part they're you, know, you play play the other parts but they don't they don't have a concept well you know to cover a timbale part instead a bell pattern mm-hmm. on the right symbol or a cascara pattern you know on, on the rims of the floor tom or something like that so even even if it's like you have some rudimentary as a drummer some rudimentary studies in in hand percussion um 
it's great because it just gives you it makes you that much more well-rounded and, and you kind of know what to play mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. be musical yeah do you think you have more opportunities because you're because you're a hand percussion player versus a drum set player do you think that there's there's less competition um there is less competition because there's fewer of us but there's less gigs not every tour or a gig has a percussionist every tour and every gig almost always has a drummer drummer. yeah that makes sense (laughs) you know so it it is kind of like you're in you have to operate within an apex in that like there's yeah there's fewer of us but there's fewer gigs too so the competition is really high as Mm -hmm. well yeah that makes sense that makes sense yeah but for me having a, a drum set background I've had an opportunity as a percussionist to play with some of the greatest drummers in the world. And so I, I often say I have the best seat in the house, you know, as a drummer, mm-hmm. drummer slash percussionist. Cause I'm like, I'm set up oftentimes like five feet away over the shoulder of whether it be Mick Fleetwood or John Robinson or Steve Ferroni or <laughs> Ricky Lawson. Like I've had an opportunity to play with all these drummers, Gordon Campbell, who's a dear friend of mine, Oscar Seton. Right. I've toured with extensively Brian Fraser Moore. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's insane. You know, mm-hmm. like it is definitely the best scene in the house. I get to, I get to, uh, play with and check out and, you know, um, really, really kind of get a feel for their drumming. Like that a lot of people don't get an opportunity to do. What drummer surprised you the most? Hmm. In what way? <laughs> anyway, whether it be skill wise, whether it be musicality, whether it be, you know, any, something that sort of blew you away or, or, or any lasting impressions of, of some guys that you played with? I had an opportunity. I've never toured with or played extensively with this person, but um, Steve Jordan, I, he called me up and I got to sit in with John Mayer Trio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was just a blast because I was, you know, just playing hand percussion, right seated next to Steve Jordan, and just getting to see him operate with a pretty sparse drum kit, you know, um, yeah, what do you, what does he have? Like a little four piece kit? He kind of had it. He had a four piece. It would seem like a four piece kit, but then to his left, he also had a separate like snare drum and that. Uh, yeah, it's know, like a two no. two drum set setup, right? That he can sort of swivel. Yep, exactly. Yeah. He, he swivels over, and so, and, but still, it's a pretty sparse kit. He changes the snare drums often. Uh, mm-hmm. my, my 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 tech on several tours is his tech. Um, so. Um, I was able to like sit there and watch uh, half of the show just sitting on a case behind Steve Jordan watching, you know, with, with his tech right. and seeing all the snare drum changes and whatnot. And then, and then playing the other half of the show. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, just seeing him operate. And at the end of the day, it's just like, it comes down to like how ridiculously great his feel <laughs> yeah. is, yeah. you know, that, that as the music, it doesn't have to do with tons of gear and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It was just, it was quite amazing. I was just listening to him today on that infamous David Letterman uh, with James Brown. Oh, sure, sure. And yep. it's just, it's it's so amazing, like you said, what he can do with, with this little kit and doesn't have all this technology and it's just musicality feel. And it's like, let me just play what's right for the song and that's it. And yep, nothing same, more, nothing less. Same thing I've played with Steve Ferroni most recently at the White House we did this big PBS special and same thing. He's got, maybe he had a five piece kit. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was a four piece kit, you know, and it was just like this beautifully tuned old Gretsch kit that he had. And it just sounded so good. And everything we played, you know, sounded right. Even, even some of the like younger artists that we played behind like Janelle Monae or Jill Scott, like, you know, they as artists may not particularly choose a drummer with with his feel or touch or even drum tuning Mm -hmm. you know but it was in a situation where we were the house band but it was just like he fell obviously he fell right and he's a you know he's a he's an iconic legend but Mm -hmm. you know he's a total pro and it was just so at the end of the day he didn't need two snare drums and a and a you know and an sbd triggering finger snaps for jill scott's tune or whatever he just did his thing and it just felt so good it was just like you know with a four-piece kit (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and he he. I had him on the podcast, and he was and he was like, you know, I'm just I'm a pocket guy. I'm a pocket drummer, and I serve up meat and potatoes, and, yeah. and yeah. that's what I do. Yep, yep. No, definitely, <laughs> definitely. It's great. So let's talk about big gigs. What's what was your big gig? Your big break? 
was it a was, slow incline or did you just sort of get plucked and you said, Oh my God, next thing you know, I'm on tour with, you know, Fleetwood Mac or something. Uh, well my, the way I started touring happened like kind of in a crazy instantaneous way in that I moved from, I finished up at Berkeley college of music. I moved from Boston to Los Angeles and I reached out to as many people as I could. And I when I entered as a freshman at Berkeley, little John Roberts came mm-hmm. in at the same time. So we've known each other since we were like 17 and we played in a band together and all this kind of stuff. We played recitals and whatnot. So he was one of the first people I called. I knew that he had left Berkeley about halfway through college. He was, by the time I graduated, he was already on tour with Janet Jackson, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he didn't live in LA, but I was like, I, I know he's always in LA. I know that all the tours are basically either put together or rehearse in LA. So that's one person I want to make reach out to. So I called and left him a message saying, Hey, I just moved to LA. Just want to make sure you have my new info. I don't know. I know you don't live in LA, but here's my pager number. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Just how to get in contact with me. Exactly. And, um, this is like in 96, he called me right back. He's like, Hey, I'm actually, I am actually in LA and, um, we're rehearsing for this, uh, Tevin Campbell, who's Mm -hmm. a young, Campbell. I haven't heard that yep. in a little while. Yes, he was, you know, a protege of Quincy Jones. Yeah, and, yeah, of course. And um, so they are in rehearsals down at Center Staging in Burbank, which is like the premier place to rehearse for tours and gigs. And uh, he said, you know, we just jam uh, for a few hours until Tevin shows up in the late afternoon. Why don't you come down and bring some drums, you know, and, and hang out with us and play? And I was like, this is my opportunity to actually meet LA musicians. This is like two weeks after I got to LA. Mm-hmm. And and because the difficult thing when you get to LA or any city, you move to a new city is getting recommended because people have not heard you play. Right. <laughs> so this and is And they like, sort of already have their stable of guys that they call. Sure. And there's not really anywhere you can go sit in and have people hear you play or whatnot. So it's like, I'm going to jump to this opportunity. Went down there and jammed with a band. And then actually after that first day, the MD took me outside and he just said, um, hey, we're actually thinking of opening the budget up and adding percussion to the band, the touring band. So that's how I got my first gig in the first two weeks of moving to L.A. Nice. Yeah, so that was pretty crazy. But With, with Tevin. As, yeah, yes. Now, as far as the first big, big gig, I was after Tevin, I was working with various different um, R&B artists. So um, just sorry to cut you off, but the yeah. the Tevin gig, what size what size venues were you guys playing? Well, here's the thing. So we were getting ready to do, I think, like a theater slash arena tour across North America. We rehearsed for four weeks, and I was on cloud nine. Last day of rehearsal, tour manager comes in and said, guys, hate to tell you this, tour is canceled. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So, and mind you, I moved to LA. Everyone had told me, like, give yourself two years before you get any work mm-hmm. in LA. And so what I did was I... Um, said, well, if I apply to grad school, that covers me for two years. If I can get some financial aid and get some get some extra money, a stipend, mm-hmm. I can cover my bare necessities. And then outside of school, I can hit the LA scene as hard as I can. So that was my two year plan. And then after two years, if I if LA doesn't work out for me, I crash and burn, or whatever. I will come out of there with a master's degree, and I could rethink what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. Maybe I maybe I get a teaching gig somewhere else. So right. that was kind of that was kind of my my safety plan. And then I get this gig after two weeks of being in LA, I defer my first semester of grad uh, school. That was, you'd and already applied and everything. You were already ready to go. I had already done it. Orientation. Oh, everything. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So, um, so <laughs> then, then you're like, I don't need this grad school. I'm playing arenas with Tevin Campbell. <laughs> exactly. And then, so then I was high and dry. Like I didn't have school. I didn't have the stipend. I had to figure out really quickly how to make some money to, float myself until next semester um tevin so the north american tour short of like a couple promo dates was canceled why did it get canceled i I have no idea i think like a promoter pulled out or something i have no idea i just i feel like it would i i wouldn't (laughs) have seen tevin as one of the people who could fill stadiums could he arenas um i think it was like a package thing i know Uh, we we did some like bet sponsored arena shows with us and a couple of different acts and right. those probably were, like Jodeci or like, yeah, ex- yeah exactly like Jodeci and um, I can't remember who else immature or something like that you know yeah. some some of those yeah, yeah, yeah. I was 90s. into all that that's why <laughs> like, okay yeah those <laughs> mid 90s acts so 
So we, um, and they just said, we'll reconvene. This is probably in September. And it's like, we'll reconvene in November. There's still like, you know, a Japan tour for a couple of weeks and there's a South Africa tour. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's when I really had to kind of like hit the pavement in LA for like those two months before we went overseas with Tevin. Um, but again, a quote unquote Japan tour is like 10 days long and right. quote unquote <laughs> South Africa tour is like four cities. You know? <laughs> You're so, not retiring. So, yeah, no. So, so that was kind of my first gig. And then that forced me to really jump into the LA scene. Thankfully, like I had good friends like Gordon Campbell, who we always hung out and we played a lot around town and whatnot. I got to meet a ton of people through him. Um, and he was doing a lot of those, um, up and coming R&B acts kind of in that this was like in the the beginning stages of neo soul so Maxwell had just debuted Kenny Lattimore had just debuted mm-hmm. Erica Badu had just come out D'Angelo's um, I think his album had been out for about a year um, Michelle and Diggio Cello's album had just come out her second album so it was like it was LA was a hotbed for like that whole neo soul scene right so I got to really like meet a ton of people kind of in the the R&B scene. Mm-hmm. And so I started getting other gigs, you know, and kind of piecemealed it together. And, and that's how, that's how I kind of made a lot of my lasting connections in, on the LA scene. Uh, fast forward, I ended up touring um, with Gordon, with Kenny Lattimore, doing a lot of gigs around town, doing various TV dates where, you know, you get a call to say, Hey, uh, Brandy's playing Jay Leno. Can you do it? You know, so I'll end up doing various like TV appearances with different artists and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then that ultimately led me to getting the call for Whitney Houston. And that was so Whitney Houston came about three years into me moving to LA. Um, and that was my first big, big artist international tour, whole shebang thing. So, and so people were right. It took about two and a half, three years <laughs> of really. Yeah. Man, what was she like to work with? She was great. Yeah. I really liked her. Yeah. She was fun. You know, I mean, in, when we did like the rehearsals and the North American tour, there was such a like bubble around her just because the press was following her around and everything. So it was, we didn't really see that much of her, but once we got over to Europe and we were in Europe for like four months straight, like at that point in time, we really got to know her. Like she was in the same hotel with us. She was always like, we'd finish a show and then we would go down, you know, to the hotel bar. She'd be down there. She'd come down and play Mm -hmm. cards with the band members, bring a boom box down and she'd, she and her dancers would have a dance party in the hotel bar, you know? So it was fun. It was just like, it was like a real kind of sense of family. And, and, um, you know, we were kind of just traveling around Europe together, like insulated, you know, but it was, it was, it was, it was definitely like this camaraderie, you know? Mm-hmm. So that was my first big international tour. That's the first time I think I even went to Europe. So it's like, everything was new and, you know, on a whole different grand scale. So right, right. I have a lot of fond memories at that time. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that, you know, the it's it's like anything else. You get that gig and then it's like, oh, now you're the guy who played percussion with Whitney Houston. So it's like, oh, well, we can get this guy. Well, has he played with anybody? Well, he just got off the Whitney Houston tour. Oh, okay. Yeah, he'll do. <laughs> right? In a way, yeah. It, well, it, but it all comes down to relationships sure. you know, more so than that. Um, uh, I went straight from the Whitney gig to Lionel Richie because the – UK promoter who traveled with us, it turns out his boss, the, the, the head of the promotions company was Lionel's manager. Ah, <laughs> so there you go. So when it, when the Whitney tour was starting to, you know, finish up like that, that guy, the, the liaison, the, the, the promoter rep on the tour bus with us said, Hey, you know, have you ever work, you have any interest in working with Lionel? We actually crossed paths with Lionel in Europe. So I got, you know, I got to meet all his band and whatnot and it turned out Lionel's putting together a brand new band. Um, and so they're switching out the percussionist. I got the call and boom, I'm on tour with Lionel Richie. We were out, we did like 50 shows opening up for Tina Turner on her world tour. And then we went out and did Lionel's European tour. And so that turned into like a three and a half, four years of touring with Lionel, like awesome. mostly overseas. It was great. And again, I made a lot of lifelong friends. Oscar Seton was the drummer. So Oscar and I played together for, over a period of probably four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've done other tours since then together with other artists. But um, And then straight from Lionel Richie, after those three years of working with Lionel, um, the tour manager, road manager, they also work with Stevie Nicks and Fleetwood Mac. Um, somewhere in there, I think maybe about a year or two into working with Lionel, they needed 
uh, Stevie Nicks was doing a corporate show and um, Lenny Castro was her regular percussionist. Mm-hmm. He, he had subbed out a handful of gigs. He, uh, he also toured with Bette Midler. So he subbed out these corporate shows with Stevie Nicks to Danny Reyes. Danny Reyes could do all but one show. So I, I ended up getting the call because of a recommendation through our, our mutual tour manager. So I did this one-off show with Stevie Nicks, I think in San Diego, some corporate gig. And that was that. Fast forward another like year and a half later, Fleetwood Mac is getting ready to do their their world tour. First new album in like 17 years. They're going to do a whole thing. And um, I ended up getting the call because Stevie Nicks remembered me. And wow. so she she recommended me to Mick Fleetwood. And actually, it turned out that Lionel was doing a corporate show. We were in Hawaii, in Maui. Well, Stevie has a home in Maui. Mick Fleetwood has a home in Maui. And we were doing some corporate show, and Stevie and Mick came down to, to see the show. And I met Mick then. And then, like, a week later, I got the call for the tour. It's amazing how the things piece together. And I mentioned yep. this frequently on the podcast that, you know, Steve's job said you can't, you can't connect the dots going forward, only going backwards. Yep. And, yep. and I, I think that there's a misconception that there's, there's no sort of correlation of how these gigs happen where it's just like, you know, the phone just rings and you just get hired for these gigs. And, you know, after 280 of these interviews, it's, everyone sort of echoes the same thing that it's relationship building. It's the way that you're acting on the gig. It's the way that you're acting on the tour. Who knows where this little bar date could lead. And there's so many people who have gotten huge tours from, Oh, I subbed for somebody at the baked potato one night. Yeah, definitely. And I tell that to the students at Berkeley college of music because I'm, I'm an artist in residence there. Mm-hmm. Um, actually officially starting in the fall so i'll be going i'll be going up there every semester for a couple of weeks at a time but i've been doing that over the last year i've been invited up as a guest speaker and that's the thing i try to instill in a lot of those young berkeley students is like it work ethic knowing doing your homework showing up on time like all those kind of things that think you know you think duh yeah of course but those are the things that actually get you work you know right. and get you recommended and i also tell them i've have not I've auditioned in my what twenty plus year career I've auditioned maybe twice mm-hmm. ever for a major artist for a major tour I did not get either of those tours <laughs> every, every other tour every other gig I've gotten it's because I've gotten a phone call out the blue from somebody I don't know an email a text or or just like somebody coming up to me <laughs> and saying hey would you be interested in mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. doing this tour that's yeah. how I got all my major tours. You'd be surprised how many people, well, you probably wouldn't be, but how many people have said, I auditioned once or twice. And a lot of times they're like, I didn't get the gig, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I mean, a lot of times it's not these cattle calls that where you're getting hired from. No, even in that, in those cases, the auditions are like, there's maybe the two auditions I've done were for one was for Shakira and one was for Madonna. And both of those, it was like a short list of people. It's not, it was not a cattle call. It was like maybe four or five of us okay. you know, that got, got handpicked and, and asked because, because of our relationships. I'm very good friends with Brendan Buckley, mm-hmm. who's been Shakira's drummer since day one. Yeah. Um, and so Brendan has, and he's pulled me in to work with Shakira since then. But as far as like, yeah, that big tour, they're just like, yeah, they called up maybe four or five of us and flew out to Miami and one afternoon and played like two songs with her and you know, that was it, Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. So that's how it works. So there is no catechol. I, I oftentimes I do have people tell or ask me like, you know, Hey, I'm thinking of moving or coming out to LA to check it out. You know, I'll come out there for like two weeks. Just let me know when the auditions are all, all, <laughs> you know, all, or let me know if there's any auditions. I'll make my way out to LA. It's like, it doesn't work like that. You know? mm, yeah. Yeah. Didn't work like that for pretty much anybody who's successful in LA. It's like, you know, um, I, I, I committed to, moving there at a minimum of two years before mm-hmm. I, you know, and so that's what you got to do. You got to go where the work is. Do you know, do you know Felix Pollard? I know Felix very well. Yeah. So he, he and I are good buddies. And I remember when I was planning on moving to LA, this is a long time ago. And I, I think we had met, we met on the, we were, we did a show with um, Everlast. So it was when he was playing with Everlast and we became buddies and I was going to move out to LA. And he said, listen, here's my biggest, my my best piece of advice is move to LA and expect your phone not to ring for five years. Yeah. You know, yeah. And so save your money as much as you can. <laughs> yeah. for LA, obviously. You know? yeah, exactly. Yeah, 
Exactly. Felix, Felix is awesome. Felix and I, mainly we played together on the Lionel Richie hit when Felix subs for Oscar Seaton. Since okay. He subs for, uh, he's kind of like the first call sub, mm-hmm. I think, on the Lionel gig. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I wondered if, if, uh, if you were playing with him on, yeah. on the Lionel gig because I knew that he yeah. was playing with him for a while. So. Yeah. Yeah. I've done some, I don't, I've never done any like full on tour dates with Felix, um, but you know, we'll go out and do a few like corporate dates with Lionel or something and Felix would be on it. I mm-hmm. mean, this is a long time ago. I haven't worked with Lionel in a long time. Right. You know, right. Since like Fleetwood Mac. A quick word from our sponsors and then back with more from Taku. This session is brought to you by my friends at DW Drums. They've been a supporter of this podcast for years now. And I love DW not only because they make great instruments, but they also serve and promote drumming initiatives like this podcast all over the world. They've been doing it since the 70s. You can learn more about them, their great products, and the family that they have over there at DW by going to dwdrums.com. It's true that not all successful drummers read music, but today's drummer needs every edge he or she can get to surpass the competition. Whether you need to start from the beginning with basic rhythms and notation, need to improve your chart reading or interpretation skills, or want to challenge yourself with sight reading, the drum reading course offered by the Drum Program at Musicians Institute can help you become an expert reading drummer. You can learn more by going to mi.edu. Hey, did you know that whether you're a full-time or a part-time musician, you can write off expenses that you have for drumming, sticks, heads, gas, tolls, all of that sort of stuff. Now, there's two options. You can track all those expenses by collecting all of your receipts in a shoebox and sifting through them at the end of the year, or you can get FreshBooks. FreshBooks is a great way for you to track your expenses. You can do it on the go, right from your phone, and you can also use it for tracking time, billing clients, and creating invoices in less than 30 seconds. The best part, you can try it for free today by going to freshbooks.com forward slash drummer, and be sure to enter drummer's resource in the how did you hear about us section. Start your free trial today with no credit card by going to freshbooks.com forward slash drummer. Now more with Taku Hirano. Now, I know that you mentioned you're working at Berkeley and I, I've seen multiple you know videos of you talking, doing clinics and, and going to different schools and talking. What's, huh? what's your biggest piece of advice for, for drummers, percussionists, musicians who are coming up now because of the landscape of the business you've been in it for a while things have you know things have obviously changed from the 90s till now but but you're still making it work uh, so what's advice what's some advice that you have for up-and-comers if they want to do this and they want to try to have a or make a go at this i think that i mean a lot of it's all just kind of common sense stuff it's the number one thing is do your homework mm-hmm. <laughs> you know uh, whether that's you, you got called to do a gig, do your homework, learn the music, learn it inside it out. Um, you got called for a session, same thing. Um, and have a strong work ethic, show up on time. Um, I used to teach at the United States Percussion Camp and the founder, Johnny Lee Lane, his motto was to be early is to be on time, to be on time is to be late. Mm-hmm. You know, And he would instill that into kids as young as like sixth grade, fifth grade. And they would, he'd make them chant that and by hearing that over and over every summer it would it it, it as an instructor it was instilled in me it's kind of like it's it, it is work ethic it is you know going that extra mile <laughs> you know mm-hmm. the other thing that i tell uh, people in clinics or the berkeley students or um or other people i'm talking to that are that are interested in making a go of it is just basically diversify you know um especially in this day and age i mean you can't just be like, oh, I want to be a funk drummer <laughs> or yeah. you, know, you have to know all styles. Mm-hmm. If you work, um, also you have to know the music business end. you, as a drummer, you, you're going to have to have your electronics, um, knowledge down in terms of whether that be on the production end, know how to work pro tools, logic, whatnot, or on the programming end, of you're going to get called for, you know, a pop tour or, or a hip hop act or whatever that, you can't just get away with playing, you know, your regular drum kit. You may have to be triggering sounds, you know. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to know the gear, get the gear if you can afford it, know the gear, and just be prepared. You know, the person who, who is known as kind of the Swiss Army knife of, of, of drummers is the person who's going to be dependable and be able to get, get the gig and stay on the gig. 
Uh, right. You know, it's 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 all it's all kind of common sense stuff. You know, I don't think there's any revelations, but it's all true. You know. Yeah. And be easy to get along with. It's one thing to get the gig. You can get a gig on a fluke. It's about keeping the gig, getting called back. You know, when you finish a tour, don't expect that just because you did the tour once or did the gig once that they they owe it to you to call you back. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, it's about getting called back. Uh, uh, is getting called back is oftentimes based on you know the lasting impression you've left musically as well as personality wise. I actually think Gordon said this. I think he said getting the gig is the hard part. Keeping the gig is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, most, if you're on like a major tour, you're only on stage, what, two hours out of not even every day of the week. Right. The rest of the time you're, mind you, the rest of the time you're on the road, you're, you are on the gig, you are under a microscope, you are handling business and you are around coworkers. So you know, whether that's on a tour bus or backstage or in the hotel or in the hotel bar or, or whatever, you have to act accordingly and you have to get along with people because mm-hmm. you're on the job. You're, you know, that's the one thing. You're on the job 24-7 for the duration of the time you're out on the road. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, so you have to be able to handle your business at all times, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yep. 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 So what about talk, what about drummers who have to go play with percussionists? Because I'm sure that you have some some pet peeves, some sort of things that make you look at the drummer and go, "Oh, come on, man, what are you what are you doing over there?" So do you have any advice for drummers coming into a room that are maybe not so accustomed to playing with a percussionist? Um, as far as pet peeves, I mean, the number one thing is what I mentioned is like kind of know know what you're playing. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't expect drummers to necessarily like try to make room for me. Like I, I'll fit in. Like I know what to play in such a way, especially me as a percussionist with a background in drum set playing. Like I know what to play because I can think like a drummer. So mm-hmm. if the drummer's going to play a fill, I know I'm not about to play a fill. Where I've seen some percussionists, you know, try to take over, and all of a sudden you're hearing a timbale fill at the same time that the drummer's doing a fill or something like that. So I know I know where I could fit in. But as far as drummers, like the pet peeve is like. On the drummer's part, they need to know uh, what they're playing that may be redundant to what a percussionist is covering. Um, and the other thing is, I mean, it just comes down to like do your research, <laughs> you know, is for drummers. Um, the uh, the other pet peeve, which would be the same for if you were to ask the bassist the same question, is just is basically if you got a drummer who just doesn't have their act together, their time, their time isn't great, you know, they're not prepared, they don't know how to play the style correctly, whether that be, you know, whether that be I'm on a gig with a very uh, hard edge hip hop drummer and he really can't swing. It's like, and we're in a situation where we're like, say, in a house band where we have to back up a bunch of different artists. And it's like, oh, the hip hop stuff sounds great, but the swing stuff is not happening. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's like if you want to work on that level where you work with a bunch of different artists and have a very diversified resume, um, you you have to earn that. By putting in your time, you know, one hundred percent. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about we we'd mentioned the Apollo dates that you're doing for the or for Showtime at the Apollo coming back out. What else do you have going on now, and some sort of things that are that are coming down the line? Okay. Um, I mentioned Berkeley College of Music. I'm going to uh, start up in the fall semester, uh, being an artist in residence there. Um, I'm still kind of finalizing that schedule, but um, I'm looking forward to that a lot. Um, I am. I have been since the the spring working with Dr. John, uh, famed New Orleans artist uh, who's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee. Um, so I've done tour dates with him and played various festivals. I'll be doing that through the fall as well. And I actually, out of the blue, I just while I was in the middle of taping Showtime at the Apollo, I got a call to go out on the road with La Nubian, which is a uh, neo soul group from the late 90s mm-hmm. uh, it was two, two sisters from france and um they're going out to do i think it's billed as the up close and personal tour or something like that we're just doing small venues where it's just going to be the two of them and uh i think a basis of keyboard is some percussion so it's going to be kind of like a unplugged not necessarily unplugged but kind of a storyteller's intimate setting tour so it should be fun so i've done a few tours in the past um, where there has been no drummer and I'm kind of filling that role. So I'm playing percussion and I'm playing kind of a cajon, uh, cajon fusion kit where I'll be sitting on a cajon and, you know, playing kind of the, the kick snare parts. I have a ride, a crash, hi-hat, cajon, 
congas, percussion table. And so I did that with Josh Groban. I've done that with Lindsey Buckingham as well. And so it'll be fun to get back kind of into that role again. So nice. That. Yeah. That's so that goes exciting. out. That goes out in mid July, like in a little in about a month. Right. So I'm just in the midst of learning music right now, actually. More of a stripped down version of, I'm looking at this setup that you have on your website. It's this oh, the, the, huge setup. Where's that from? That's actually from the Cirque du Soleil Michael Jackson Immortal Tour. Ah, was, okay. Yeah, I was out on that for two years straight. That was in 20, I think it was 2010 to, to 2012, or maybe it was 20, no, 2011 to 2013, I was out on that tour, which was, again, another call that came out the blue. I got a my phone rang and answered it and it was, Hey, this is Greg Fillingaines. And oh, wow. <laughs> I got recommended to you, you know, actually by a friend of ours, uh, Trevor Lawrence. Mm-hmm. And he and Trevor were on tour with Herbie Hancock at the time. And he and Trevor and I have known each other since college, college age. And so he was like, Oh, you need a percussion. So you need to call Taku. So uh, I got this call from Greg Fillingaines out the blue and said, basically that, before Michael Jackson died, he was already talking about doing a collaboration with Cirque du Soleil. After his passing, Cirque started talking to the Michael Jackson estate, and they created a show, basically 50% Cirque du Soleil ownership, 50% Michael Jackson estate. And so they wanted members of Michael Jackson's band to be the touring band. Michael had never toured with a percussionist. Bashiri Johnson was set to do the This Is It shows with Michael, but before that... um, there had never been a percussionist on any of the live shows. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, obviously there's tons of percussion on, you know, Off the Wall and, and uh, Thriller. And that a lot of that was because Quincy Jones produced it. And, and so Paulinho da Costa was it, the, the number one call guy for Quincy Jones. So Paulinho is all over the all over those, you know, iconic tracks. But sure. they never had, you know, for the Bad Tour, uh, they never toured Thriller, so they for the Bad Tour, the Dangerous Tour, they never had live percussion history tour, nothing, none of that. So they never did that, a Thriller tour. Nope, really, never, never did a Thriller tour. So Michael's first solo tour was bad. Was there a and reason I, behind it? You know, I don't know. I'm not sure. That's like the biggest. What's that? The biggest record of all time, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that and that band was Greg Fillon Gaines. Um, Jonathan Moffat was on tour at the time with Madonna. Okay. And, doing the blonde ambition tour so he couldn't do it and jonathan is like the number one call for the jacksons like mm-hmm. he played on a lot of stuff there his he was their favorite drummer since jonathan wasn't available greg Fillingaines called ricky lawson because uh, greg and ricky worked together with lionel richie so, oh okay yeah and then um talking about connections the bad tour they the bassist on the bad tour was don boyette don boyette was lionel richie's um bassist and so they ended up uh calling um don for the bad tour well don boyette ended up playing bass on this Cirque du soleil tour as well um, mm. the rhythm guitarist from the bad tour as well john clark ended up doing it so i it was such an honor to get the call from greg Fillingaines to be in this band for a michael jackson tribute with so many people from michael's band it was so it was actually it was so it, it was jonathan moffin on drums greg Fillingaines on keys as, and musical director, uh, John Clark on rhythm guitar, Don Boyette on bass, and one of the background singers, Fred White, he sang with Michael on the History Tour. And oh, so, okay. so, yeah, and getting to be you know in the rhythm section was just quite amazing. You know, yeah, to I'm, hear all this I'm looking story. at all this stuff and I'm like, man, I would, I would get lost trying to play this. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I have all that stuff because at least one song... Requires something. Require, yeah, you sure. know, and we... We did. I don't even know how many songs we had and how much material we had to cover. So you know, I, was I would lose that gig in thirty seconds. I'd be like, "Where's <laughs> where did I put the shaker?" The, the game over. Yeah, game over for me. <laughs> well, that's the other thing. I choreograph my movements a lot. So like sometimes I even have notes or mental notes. Like after I've finished playing this section of a song, or after I finish playing the song, even I need to put the shaker down in this spot because now my left hand has to pick it up. You know, so you know, I do choreograph movements. That a lot. when I was in college, I my uh, the conductor told me move, like changing instruments in time yeah. because oh, if yeah. I I would set down the cymbals and I would go to pick up you know whatever a block or a shaker or something like that and he said and I was always off time and I would lose where I was on the page and he said if you move in time you know and you put it down and make 
a, you'll you know take a couple steps over and then you pick up the shaker on one and then you're ready to go on two and then you play it on three and yep. so it's it's it, it makes things a lot easier so to hear you say that that makes total sense of course you would have to do something like that you know yeah but i, I don't think most people would think to do that I, I mean that's just like like you said that's from a concert band classical percussion background and that's my background so that's how i organize you know myself even in a pop setting so mm-hmm. Yeah, and that makes that makes sense, and it may, and I'm sure that it keeps you in time, you know, because if you're moving faster than the song is moving or something like that, I would imagine that you would have a the maybe the inkling to speed up or or hit on the wrong you know subdivision or something like that. Right, right, right. You know, well, I mean, the great thing with a tour is, I mean, before you even hit the stage for your first show on a gigantic pop tour, you probably have rehearsed for two months, mm-hmm. possibly three months. Yeah. So. You kind of work out all those kinks, including your choreography, including your patch changes, all that kind of stuff. Right. You know, so, right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I'll, I'll snap a picture of this and and put it in the show notes so that everybody can check it out. It's a massive percussion setup. It looks oh, awesome. Yeah. The one thing that's that's tough on those big pop gigs where I'm surrounded by when I have to cover a lot of electronics is I, I I'm surrounded by electronic pads is like like on that Search Slay Michael Jackson tour I had to cover so many electronics that. It, almost every song was a different patch change. So then when you go from one song to the next, every sound completely changes on the pads in front of you. So right. a, a finger snap could be on the far right pad on one song, but all of a sudden that same finger snap is going to be on the left hand on the left pad, you know? So it's like kind of, oh, and you don't saying. have, you don't have any visual indication of where the sound has moved to <laughs> because all you <laughs> think is black gum rubber pads in front right. of you. Right. So it's just a matter of memorizing it. Memorizing. Yeah. I would, I would have to like really kind of chart out like diagram, you know, where, where certain sounds are until, until we got this. And the thing is the set list could change. And then all of a sudden, like the song order changes and that, that you have to re, you know, you have to reset your patch chains and all that kind of stuff. So, so are you changing, are you changing the patches in real time or are they already sequenced and they're changing automatically? I put a patch chain together from right. song to song to song, okay. and I could just advance it with a foot pedal. I yeah. got you. Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. what I was wondering. Yeah, because you're, oh, yeah, yeah. like, you're not going in there dialing it in. And, oh, no, right. no, no. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've never, had to, I've never had to use any electronics on any gigs. So. Oh, okay. So it's, it's, uh, it's a bit foreign to me of how – I mean, I understand the concept and, and how it ties in and triggers and everything, but I've never, I've never really needed to – have I used – I might be lying, uh, but I, from what I remember – I mean, if I did, maybe I had to like trigger one sound, like a clap yeah. or something that I would use. But I've right. never had, you know, where half of, the, half of the beat was on a pad and half of it is on a drum or, or anything like that. Right, right. Yep. So it's a little foreign to me. And like I said, going through and changing, you know, from song to song. So, yep. Yep. And the other thing with incorporating electronics into acoustic, you know, when you have a, something like a tour where you have time to, to get everything dialed in, that's great. But, you know, it's like you, you have to really audio wise, you got to figure out like where your levels are set, you know, so that like in, in a situation like yours where like you're playing an acoustic snare drum, but like then you're playing a hand clap just for the choruses of a song that you want to get it dialed in. So like the levels are, are right. You know, mm-hmm. you don't, <laughs> so, so there's a lot of tweaking involved and stuff like, a, you know, kind of that logistical stuff that, yeah. that comes into play that, that, and that's, that's kind of what it takes is having, having to, to play on those pop gigs where that's required. You have to have that together. Mm-hmm. You know? So, you know, when someone comes up to me, he's like, oh, I want to play on the pop gigs you play on. It's like, okay, well, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you have to have, together before you even consider for that so what do you think people should do just buy some pads and just start learning them start messing around with them same way that they learn how to play a kit yeah definitely i mean you're not going to learn until you own the the gear i you know people assume that when i was at berkeley like i was you know took all these classes in electronic percussion and all this kind of stuff because now nowadays i'm kind of known as one of the guys that has you know a fusion electronic acoustic setup and it's like that. No, that's not really the case. Like I couldn't afford any of the gear, so I didn't even start learning electronics until I moved to LA. And one of my first gigs, you know, required that I play hand claps on a song. And I was like, okay, well, I have a little money. I'm going to go out and buy a Roland Octopad, and I'm going to trigger it on these two songs, or you know. And then in my time off, I read the manual and learned the machine inside and out. And that's you know, that's it. 
it's it's doing again it goes right. back to doing your homework <laughs> yeah 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 makes sense to me yeah it's 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 logical but i guess you know people need to hear it yeah and be reminded uh, of all the cuz i think i think it's easy for us as humans to just sort of look at anyone in a certain position and you know think that they either were always in that position Yep. You know, it's hard to, you know, when you look at someone who's successful, you're like, well, they've always sort of been like that. And it's like, well, no, they started somewhere. Yeah. And then yep. to to think that it was easy for them or they didn't struggle or they didn't have to like figure it out just like everyone else does. Uh, so hearing that, that, you know, reinforced over and over again makes people realize, okay, I'm no different from everybody else. If I want to do this, I can do it. It's just got to, it's going to take some hard work and, you know, it's I'm going to have to struggle. That's it. You know, I'm, I'm still everyone's still trying to better themselves. I'm still trying to better myself, you know, sure. and, and getting learn new technology. And I'm, you know, now I never thought my, my whole focus when I was at Berkeley and moving to LA is I want to be the top call player for as many different genres of music as possible. And now I can look back at my resume. I'm very proud of all the different styles I've, I've played with top artists and all these different genres. It's like, okay, well what's next? You know, I can keep doing it. Um, so then, so the next thing is like, getting into writing and arranging, which I took a ton of writing and arranging courses at Berkeley and film scoring courses. Mm -hmm. That's finally coming full circle where I'm actually now writing, you know, music cues and trailer music for like most recently, like the CW networks I'm doing their various TV shows. Um, and that's something that I never thought, but it's like you get, it comes down to, and I tell the Berkeley students this oftentimes it's like rise to the occasion, like don't turn anything down and look mm -hmm. at everything as an opportunity. And, and so I got a, you know, same thing. I got a recommendation. I got a call, and and I've I've done some remixing and production stuff in the past. I have a um, have a production uh, team, mm -hmm. just basically basically myself and my production partner. We both went to Berkeley together, and um, we've done remix work and production work, and we have a couple albums of our own original material uh, under our belt. That our our production team is called Dow of Sound, mm -hmm. like T A O yep. T A O of Sound. And, uh, so we, so we're signed to a Japanese label. We put out three albums, but you know, we've always done things as a production team. So this is kind of like my first outing as, as a production entity and a, and a composer working with the CW and, and working with the TV exec. And, um, you know, I was like, Oh wow, it's kind of full circle. Like this was definitely not in my field of vision and, and goals when I first moved to LA, but you know, it's like, I'm starting to flex another muscle of some of my training that I had college so i'm constantly trying to grow and constantly trying to figure out new things you know it's mm -hmm. like yeah i i think a lot of times too when someone talks about how they ended up in a certain situation it's usually i don't want to say usually but a lot of times it's not that they were necessarily thinking you know 20 years ago oh this is what i'm gonna do it's just sort of one thing leads to the next and you say oh i'm, I'm actually kind of good at this thing let me try this thing and then yep. it moves into this and you know like now you're writing and doing production work for the cw network but i'm sure that you know when you were 15 you weren't like this is what this is what i'm gonna do it's just things lead there but if you don't start or if you don't start at least working towards something, nothing's going to happen. So exactly. And then, like I said, like work hard, do your homework, work ethic, of course, but also don't turn down any opportunities. Always look for opportunities, rise to the occasion, just get out of your comfort zone. I'm con like, I'm constantly out of my comfort zone, like in one way or another. And mm -hmm. it's obviously it's not comfortable. <laughs> it's just, it's kind of like, you know, it's, but that's how you get better. Yeah, you know? that's where the growth comes from. Yeah, you know, definitely. definitely. So, if people want to stay connected with you, figure out the stuff that you have going on, the tours that you're on, what's the best way for them to sort of uh, follow you? Um, probably through my website. That's that's usually the best way. Um, it's takupercussion.com. I keep my schedule and tour dates and all that kind of stuff up to date all the time. Um, and uh, I'm pretty regular on social media, so. Facebook, Instagram, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm okay with Twitter, but you know, so I, I kind of keep up to date okay. with, with all the stuff that that's kind of going on in my life. Um, and I'll link all the stuff that I'll link all your social channels, your website, all the stuff that we talked about in the show notes so that people can go and check that out as well. There's right, yeah. <laughs> one of the, the pictures only, that you put on uh, Instagram is pretty um, funny with the tape laying on the table with the, with the, uh, 
the tape is all coming out of the cassette and the doctor's oh, standing yeah. there and he's like pencil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's yeah, an old, old school reference. I don't, you know, some people are like, I don't get it. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, the only thing I would say on Facebook, like I do have like a, a Facebook public page and that's, I do answer messages on that. I don't, my personal Facebook page, I, I only linked with, I get tons of friend requests, but I only link with people I know personally on right. that. But sure. I, I'm diligent about keeping up to date with the, my public page, I, which I believe is just facebook.com slash Taku Hirano, I think, or maybe it's Facebook. Uh, it's Taku Percussion. Taku Percussion, right. Yeah, so. Cool. And I'll link to all that so that, that people can find it, and I'll make sure that I, I lead them in the right direction for that. So Awesome. Awesome. Good deal, man. Well, Taku, thank you for doing this. I appreciate it, man. I, I love what you're what you're doing. I love the fact that you're constantly evolving. You're trying to do new things. Like you said, you're constantly trying to better yourself. And that's a lot of what this podcast is about is like, hey, you may not be exactly where you want to be, but just you got to keep pushing forward and you got to you got to keep pressing on. So I do I do dig what you're doing. Thank you very much. I had a great time talking to you, Nick. Likewise. Likewise. And anytime you want to come back, man, you're you're more than welcome. We'd love to have you. Awesome. Great. Thank you. Thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye. So there you have it. Taku Hirano. I hope you got a ton of value out of the things that he was saying about networking, about how you got to do your homework. You got to put in the work. You have to, you know struggle sometimes to to make this career happen if you really want to do it and he is a prime example of how it can be done and how it can be done really really well you can check out the show notes links to everything how to contact him and all the stuff that we talked to talked about excuse me by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 282 also if you want to get those weekly emails about what's getting released what was released the previous week or things that i'm listening to uh interesting links that i can send to you all that kind of stuff you can just sign up by going to drummersresource.com and signing up for the mailing list and if you're already on the mailing list no worries you'll get these emails but if you're not sign up at drummersresource.com and until the next podcast keep drumming thank you so much for listening i do appreciate it and i'll be talking to you soon peace (laughs) 